Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com slash workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in the virtual cupboard with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. It gets a little deeper every week. I like it. <laughs> One day it's going to be like it's going to be like Barry White. Hello, I'll work on that. <laughs> Joining us from well, at least six thousand miles and multiple time zones away is the altogether tremendous Adele Berté. Welcome, Adele. Thank you for having me, Barney. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> did I pr- Hi. did I pronounce your surname correctly? You did. You did. Good. Great. Thank Excellent. I didn't you. think there was any other way of pronouncing it, but I've only ever called you Adele. I've never called you Ms. Berté. No. So I thought I'd better check. You wouldn't dare. <laughs> 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 right. Right, Ms. Bate. Anyway, I hope you've had your LA power breakfast because you're going to need it. We have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Adele is a singer songwriter, former contortion, former backing singer for numerous hit acts. She's also the author of not one, but two great books, the second of which is about our beloved LaBelle and is out this week. And we'll be talking about Patty and Nona and Sarah in a little while. We'll also talk about August Darnell, August Darnell and <laughs> Sally Grossman. But first, you know, I would love to hear about the city you grew up in, Adele, Cleveland, and, and mm. how you came specifically to write last year's remarkable memoir, Peter and the Wolves. Tell us about Cleveland and your upbringing. Well, Cleveland, you know, it it was such a rough city as I was growing up. It was very segregated. 
a lot of working class people fighting with each other for jobs, for scraps, really. But the music that was happening was was quite amazing. On the one hand, we had like bands like Per Ubu and the Dead Boys and Rocket from the Tombs. And Chrissy Hind actually came from Akron, but she got out of there in time. Yeah, she's an honorary <laughs> English woman. Yes, now. she is. Yes, she is. <laughs> but then on the black side of town, you had people like, you know, they're a little older than me, but there was Bobby Womack and the Daz Band and Tracy Chapman and Jimmy Scott and Albert Ayler. So there was great music happening, you know, in Cleveland all along. And then I met Peter Lochner, I think it was 75 that we met, who really turned me on to so much music and, and literature. And he was kind of like the, the, the vortex of all things Cleveland and music. But he had this terrible bad boy reputation that bordered on the macabre as his legend progressed because, you know, he destroyed himself with drugs and alcohol, which was very sad. But there was a lot happening in Cleveland at the time. It was kind of like, in a way, a sister city to Manchester, you know, dying industrial city, wasteland. You could see the vegetation uh, coming through the cracks in the cement, just taking the city back, you know. And the angst and uh, frustration that came from that, of course, resulted in the music. Lochner really, I mean, it's one of the great should have been stories, isn't it? I remember reading about him first in Lester Bangs's Psychotic Reactions yeah. collection. Yeah. I hadn't heard about him before. Yeah. Obviously, I'd heard of Perubu and I knew something about, about Cleveland, but I didn't know about Lochner. And and it sort of imprinted something in my head. And so when I heard about your book, which originally came out in 2013, didn't it? It did, but it was just something for my Kickstarter friends. I didn't really technically publish it. It wasn't for sale, you know, at that moment. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And now and now it's come out in as a sort of companion piece or on the back of this box set that I know you were delighted to see. I mean, he clearly is a fascinating guy. And what I love is, on, on the one hand, he was this sort of wannabe Lou Reed kind of Baudelarian junkie poet figure. But you mm -hmm. really take pains to to say that he, he wasn't like a, a kind of cartoon. You know, he wasn't a he wasn't a cliche. He was as much into kind right. of, you know, Graham Parsons and Jimmy Rogers as as he was mm -hmm. into you know, as he was into Lou Reed or television. I mean, it's actually a beautiful kind of story of, of a friendship that you write about in this book. Thank you. Thank you. You know, one of the observations I had through the years about Peter, well, after being his roommate and playing music with him, is how much of a singer-songwriter he really was and how he felt such peer pressure, because this was the beginning of punk. So, you know, the attitude was all aggression and... And he could write a punk song like nobody's business. I mean, if you hear the song, Ain't It Fun, you know, it's just amazing. But really, his soul was in the singer-songwriter tradition. You know, he loved... Phil Oaks and Dylan and all these people. But 
around him, the milieu of punk just made him feel like he had to present the same type of image with guns and, you know, the drink. And he was very, very self-destructive. And uh, part of that was because he couldn't be himself. He felt like he couldn't be his authentic self because of the scene. At the very same time, he started all those bands. He was he started Rocket from the Tombs and Perubu, you know, with David Thomas. But the Dead Boys came out of that. And, you know, he was kind of a catalyst. And he also really supported women artists and women musicians, which was, you know, not that was not happening in the Cleveland scene. It was a very macho, very sexist, bordering on misogynistic uh, scene. Why do you think he sort of took you under his wing, Adele? I think it was the outsider that we saw in each other. You know, um, I was this little kid who came out of reformatories in Cleveland, you know, and was very out as a lesbian and uh, was singing gospel music. And he saw me singing a Janis Joplin song and I had on my apple cap and I was, you know, straight up pimping and... <laughs> He was like, you know, I could just see his eyes pop like, what the hell is this? You know, but so so we kind of, you know, resonated to that outsider in each other. And um, because ultimately, I think he was very lonely, as was I, because of our internal lives and the way we grew up. And we were like brother and sister. We became a team for a while there. I suppose, you know, one of the questions that you address in the book or that maybe have been that's been put to you is you know why didn't peter move to new york and kind of get his act together was he so self-destructive and so kind of doubting of himself that he he felt that he wouldn't make it there ultimately or he would be rejected by paddy smith and tom verlaine and lou reed and the others Well, the thing is, he was initially embraced by all of those people. Tom Verlaine thought he was a brilliant guitarist. But he he, was, you know, his. Yeah. But, you know, he was so afraid of that people would discover something about him that he was ashamed of. Or I mean, that's where the drink came in. You know, it's that he took courage in that. But when he would be in situations with people that could have really helped him, the fear came up and he would you know, drown it in drink and do something absolutely ridiculous, like jump on a stage with Patti Smith's band when he was pissed out of his gourd and they'd have to take him off the stage, you know? So yeah, he, he messed up a lot of opportunities that way. And you did move to New York City. So I wanted to ask you a bit about that. I mean, it's a very poignant moment where you, you find you're in New York and you actually, I think, have to go back to Cleveland for Peter's funeral, Mm, if I remember rightly. And then you come back and you, you know, in in your way, you make it in New York, you become part of the scene there, you end up joining the the contortions. Mm. And I believe that kind of the next volume of, of... of the sort of part two of the memoirs is is going to kind of look at that time, which we're all fascinated by. Um, yes. And so I just, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I, Mark is a, is a, is a, we're all big like Z Records fans and uh, big James yes. White fans, and so it's fa- it's yes. really really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It has to be said that the Contortions played quite the worst show I've ever seen in my life. They came to <laughs> London to play, to, to play the ven- the venue in Victoria. And I think half the band had been turned away at customs. Mm. So he had a sort of like 
a shitty British jazz funk band called Central Line backing him. And it was just awful. <laughs> so, so what was it like being a contortionist? Well, what was it? Well, in the beginning, I think our first gig probably sounded very similar to what you're describing. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it, what's funny about it is that it did coalesce into this, you know, we were playing polyrhythms off of each other and it became very funky and very out because it was like these noise clusters that we were all playing pat what playing slide guitar and me playing yeah. the ace tone organ as if it was you know uh, a conga drum or something and it was very much in that spirit of sun Ra's clusters but yeah, yeah but it did coalesce into something at one point that was extremely magical and almost situationist in a way because James would jump out into the audience at Max's Kansas city and, you know, we'd be playing and he would grab some woman and start kissing her. And the woman's boyfriend would get up and start pummeling him. Right. And then George Scott, the bass player and I <laughs> would jump into the audience and it would be fisticuffs going in, you know, in front of the stage and the rest of the band would still be playing and we'd be fighting. And it was just insane. <laughs> Absolutely insane. <laughs> and, you know, people loved it. People loved it. The spectacle, you know? Yeah. So. Um, I mean, it's also interesting how many people came out of that band and went on to do really interesting stuff. I mean, Pat plays some of the Bush Tech, yes. absolutely one of my favourite bands. It's a brilliant and, band. And brilliant. you came out of it. I mean, it, it really produced a lot of really good players and really interesting musicians. And artists as well. Straight out of it. Yeah, Though, James I mean, Nairs. I mean, obviously the stresses and strains, we got a couple of brilliant articles from New York Rocker. Mm. I think it's Tim Page wrote them. And he interviews just after basically most of that first generation of the band had left mm -hmm. James, mm -hmm. and they're stabbing him in the front. And then he interviews <laughs> him, and he's stabbing them in the front. Mm. And it's just yeah. hilarious. It is. You're, it is. you're out of the country in that piece. I checked it, and sadly, sadly, you were in Europe at that point. So your, your voice is not heard. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yes. But it must have been a fascinating <laughs> time to be in New York between, you know, 79 and kind of 81, mm -hmm. those years when 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 sort of uh, disco was intersecting with like art rock and post punk mm -hmm. and and as you've said i think you said in an interview with richie unterberger you know and i think what your next book is going to be a lot about is just how many women were in that scene and what yes. a difference that made it was you know there were a lot of macho pigs around i'm sure mm, but mm. there were so many women in so many bands i mean you had your own i i found this when i was going through my singles oh my god button up Oh, yes. you got it. Your, <laughs> band, your very own band, The Bloods. There was an all-girl band, wasn't it? it was all yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was your yeah. label. <laughs> it was, yeah, I was so, so pleased to find that. But I mean, do you remember it as a place that was kind of exciting, fun, but also kind of a bit scary, a lot of hard drugs on the scene? What, how do you look back on it? Well, when I got there in 77, it was, it was so revelatory because women were coming from all over the world, really. You know, we had the au pairs and the slits playing and malaria from Berlin, but not just women musicians, but women artists as well. Vivian Dick was making films. Of the Irish filmmaker, Kathy Acker was writing her books. Yeah. So everybody was there together 
And I think because of the presence of so many female artists and musicians, in a way, it kind of pushed the guys to go even further, you know, and it was incredibly exciting what was going on. And then as things started to cross over too, like in the early 80s with hip hop and punk and no wave and, and all of it, and, and then the dance music as well, which Z Records was the king of, you know, one of my favorite artists on Z, Lizzie Mercier. Who, oh, yeah. who is just my heart. We were very, very close friends and her music was just phenomenal. And the way she played guitar was so unique and so inimitable, you know. Those records are just stellar, yeah. And Lydia Lunch. Oh, Lydia's amazing. Amazing, amazing stuff. Amazing. Yeah, and she's still an iconoclast, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people either run from her or just are, are attracted to her, you know? She's just amazing. She's Are amazing. you still in touch with Lydia? Oh, do yeah. You, do you communicate with her? Yeah, I figured you. She's one of my oldest friends. She was my first friend in, in 1977, my first female friend. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And oh, we're still very story. close. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Z, and it's the perfect moment for me to ask Mark to introduce the first of our clips with August Darnell speaking about mm. precisely that scene. Yeah, right. this is an interview with Larry Jaffe on the 16th of May 2016, four days before his musical Cherche Le Femme mm-hmm. was starting off Broadway. And in this clip, he's talking about Z Records and precisely what we've been mm-hmm. talking about. And his, his enthusiasm is, is mm. marvellous, mm. I think. It's, nice. it's great. You were at Z Records. Um, Z Records, working as the house producer, I uh, was. Um, I was curious if uh, you had crossed paths with John Cale. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know who's still playing? Um, James White and the Blacks. I just saw him advertised at the, at, at the bar down here on the window saying, coming in June, James White and the Blacks. I said, oh my God, this guy's still, still doing because everyone there was a rumor about 10 years ago that he died of a heroin overdose and so he was heavy into drugs and shit so i saw his, his poster up and i said you know what if i'm in town i gotta go see this guy james white do you remember that yeah, yeah, yeah. and lydia lunch right. and uh all of the, christina of course microsoft's ex all of them yeah we we um we had a great little office up there and i was like i was a um i was a producer that they called upon to do everything Say, hey, we need a remix of James Chance and the Blacks. We need a disco. I go in with James White and we create this incredible disco mix of that crazy guy's music. It's a good time, man. <laughs> good time. It was a good time. <laughs> uh, I mean, conversely, Kicker on Coconuts at Lyceum, and I think 1981 mm. was one of the best shows I've ever seen oh. in my life. It was absolutely amazing. They were total they were show people. I mean, absolutely loved them, you know. Although, if you were in the no wave scene and you like you resonated to Kid Creole. You were looked at as, oh God, you know, dis- dis- <laughs> disco dance music. Uh, then, of course, James Chance got onto Z Records and it became dance music, you know? So. <laughs> Barney, do you want me to carry on talking about the interview or do we yeah. switch back? No, I think it would, what would be nice, I thought, was that clip about 
August Dolan talking about New York City uh-huh. and what it, what it meant to him then and what it means to him right, now. Right. Absolutely. Let's 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 listen to that. It's it's, it's great because this got to remember by this time he hadn't been there for thirty years. Mm. He moved first of all to England and then to Scandinavia mm. and is no longer a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. So this this is interesting. I am the guy who penned the famous line, when you leave New York, you go nowhere. <laughs> but so I'm allowed to say that at one point in my life, I got tired of New York City. Now when I come back, it's great to come back, because um, now I see what attracted me to the place in the, in the you know, in, when I was a youngster of growing up here. It's the greatest place in the world for opportunities. It's the greatest place in the world for competition, for, for doing your craft, and, and, and for walking the streets and being your own person and not having to worry about how you look or how you dress. It's a great city for many, many reasons. But coming back to it, I find it very scary. Get back, alley cat. Don't go relax. <laughs> very dirty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess if you were coming from Scandinavia, that would certainly be true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Scandinavia is very clean. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, the, it the, is. the New York of 2021 is a very different New York for 1977, 78, 79. It certainly is. Yeah. 77, Daryl Ford had told New York to drop dead. Yes. It was reported on the front. Yes. I mean, where were you living in New York at that time? I was living on the Lower East Side, the East Village, yeah, yeah. which was where everything was kind of concentrated in terms of, you know, music and art. And yeah, when I go back to New York now, it's heartbreaking. I still have a lot of friends there, of course, and and I still love it for that. But it's also full of ghosts because we've lost so many people that we love from drugs, from from AIDS, from drugs, from hepatitis C. A lot of the women that I I adored and was very close with died of hepatitis C in the last like 10, 15 years. So in a way, it's, it's a bit of a ghost town for me. Yeah, yeah, and also people have gotten priced out of it. I don't, I don't understand how young people can live there and be create. It's not the place for young creativity now. I mean, first, first of all, they moved out to Brooklyn because that was the only affordable place. Right. Now they're being priced out of Brooklyn. Well, exactly. God knows where they're going to. Well, they're, they're they've go all gone yeah. upstate now. If they if they're still in New York State, they've gone up to the Hudson Valley. Right. Most of them, I think. Right. And yeah. you know, people there are down. I but, do. But yeah. Have you seen the Fran Leibovitz series on, I on have. Netflix? I have. Yes. <laughs> I love. Fran. I don't know if it makes you nostalgic. <laughs> or the sh- I I absolutely love it. Uh, yeah. It's, it's yeah. just such a kind of hymn to New York City, isn't it? Oh, totally, totally. She's. she's but I love this audio great. interview with with Darnell. He comes over. He's such mm-hmm. a sort of chucklesome guy, isn't he? He's, and he's, he's, he's yeah. He goes into this long riff about uh, about Seymour Steen, which is just so funny. It's it's just you know, on the one hand, he really loves him, on the other hand, he's been ripped off by him, he's been mistreated right. by him. But, yeah. he, but but he's great. Mm-hmm. And he, he's very funny about Prince writing a song for him, The Sex of It, which was, yes. you know, which nothing <laughs> happened nothing much happened with Because Prince that. has only just died when Larry Jaffe's talking to him. Two weeks before. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, he's just he's he's absolutely charming. He, he goes into a riff about his university, Hofstra, mm-hmm. and about the, the his fellow alumni, including Tommy Mottola and people like that. Right, you know, right. Yes, yeah. Cherchez la femme. That record la femme so, Tommy Mottola. so brilliant, right? That's yeah. right. I'd forgotten that Mottola gets a name check, uh, uh, but he was actually <laughs> yeah. sort of almost like, I think he was, 
managing Doctor Doctor Buzzard. He was original Savannah band. Very briefly. I mean, I, yes, right, he had right. Donnell played a, some kind of big part in, in the idea that I had of New York City. I think particularly that that mm-hmm. extraordinary Machine record there, but for the grace of God, go I, which which is really one of the most extraordinary disco records to come out of that period. Oh, yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely brilliant. And they had so much style. I mean, the musicality was brilliant, the showmanship. And, you you know, his playfulness came out on stage. It came out in Dr. Buzzard and then in turn in Kid Creole, you know. Yeah, Just yeah, so absolutely. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, the mystery is why Kid Creole never really made it in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why essentially they had success outside of america and and as a result he has lived in sweden for 30 years or i think he says he's in maui now but i mean i i wonder why kid krill didn't didn't make waves in the states maybe they're just kind of unpigeonholeable in some way in some stylistic way in some racial way i don't know i think you nailed it i think it's the it's that mentality that the record you know corporate record industry has that they have to put you in a genre in a neat little box or else they don't know what to do with you that in, that actually happened to labelle when they did that record for rca which is called pressure cooking which was revolutionary for its time. It was incredible, that record. And RCA dropped them after that one record because they they just couldn't handle all that black female ferocity, you know? It's like, what do we do with this? <laughs> so they dropped them, which was just, and I'm sure Vicki Wickham brought them to RCA because of Bowie. And she probably thought, well, if they're, if they're good with Bowie, they're going to be good with the theatricality of LaBelle. Etc. And um, no, they dropped him. And that record, it, it critics loved it, but it never got the uh, kudos that it deserved. You Indeed, know? I mean, is this, is this a good moment, Barney? For us you, to talk you've about- segued brilliantly into the LaBelle portion <laughs> of the show, <laughs> yeah, with, without even being being prompted. <laughs> so, brilliant yeah, job. Yeah, I mean, I just oh, demolished wow. your book just in the last few days. Absolutely loved it. Thank demolished you. Demolished or you. devoured. Demolished. Demolished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Demolished. Welcome to our show. We've demolished you. You demolished my book. How dare you? Oh my god. <laughs> and of course, we had Vicky as a guest as a guest on the show a few weeks ago, uh-huh. and she's she was a marvelous guest. And we're we're all huge Vicky Wickham fans. Oh, here I love her. Pages. She's so brilliant. She was yeah. great. She yeah. was so. so it's great. so interesting reading about how. She gets them. She meets them when they play Top of the Pops. They're, they're probably their first London visit. Well, ready, uh, steady, go. Ready, steady, no, go. Ready, steady, ready, ready, steady, ready, go. steady, go. Ready, yeah, steady, yeah. go. Yes, that's it. Ready, yeah. steady, and go. And they yeah. became fast friends. Mm. And then she comes over saying, "You've got to change the way you're doing things. You know, this old girl group sort of stuff isn't going to work any longer." Mm. And they go with it. You know, which is amazing. Nona Hendricks comes out of that sort of aspect. Oh, yeah, yeah. When we had on a podcast, Nona was Vicky's sound technician for the podcast. Right. Helping set up her Mac and microphone. Yes, yes. (laughs) Which is is fabulous. Yeah, yeah. No, um, they're just so, so great. But, you know, Vicky... Vicky only brought out what they had simmering inside them that the whole girl group genre had repressed. Really, you know, and Nona, funny enough, Nona started writing songs when they were still a girl group. And it was Curtis Mayfield who who actually supported her when he heard her first song and said, you've got to keep doing this. This is this is really brilliant. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's in the book, Barney. (laughs) I have read the book. I'll have you know. I just, I just, uh, 
I just didn't really take that, that bit on board. But you it, must, it's you must have been napping during that part, right? I nap a lot, as these guys will attest. <laughs> Where did the impetus come from to write the book about LaBelle? I had written uh, an essay about Tori Amos for a book called Women Who Rock, and Evelyn McDonald, who put that book together, said she was doing a series for the University of Texas Press called Why Music Matters, and did I want to pitch anything? And, you know, LaBelle uh, has, I get into the, the idea of music in terms of how it can heal, going to the extent of how it can actually heal trauma in some cases. And LaBelle has always been incredibly close to my heart as a gay woman too. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, well, there's no one has written a book about LaBelle yet. Let me write this book and pitched it. And the great thing about the series is that they don't request that you write a typical bio. It's all about, you know, your, your feelings of why a specific group matters. And in my case, it was, you know, it was from music as a healing art as well as, a, as you know, for joy and dance and everything else. So I was able to inject a little bit of memoir in terms of what they meant to me in my trajectory, you know. Yeah. Which, which, is, which is absolutely fascinating. You weave yourself into the story without putting yourself in centre into the story. You know, mm. but, but your experience is all, kind of, uh, uh, always there. I think most of us in this country is Lady Mamelad, which really made us aware of La Belle as a, as sure, a group. Of course. I bought Nightbirds the moment it sort mm-hmm. of appeared. It's just a fantastic album. Mm. I, mean, I suppose partly because I was already aware of Alan Toussaint. Mm. I was a fan of Alan Toussaint. Yes. He produced it, though. I, mean, I was very interested to find out that he more or less phoned his production in from the office upstairs. Which, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then certainly in this country, they rather disappeared. And they only went on for another three years after Nightbirds. They did two more albums, right. Phoenix and Chameleon. Mm. Chameleon, oh, my God, some of the songs on that are just... That's great. Holy cow. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they disbanded in 76 and all went their separate ways. But uh, a lot of great music came out of their separate careers as well. I mean, well, Addy, absolutely. You know. yeah. and, well, Nona, indeed, and Nona. And, and yeah. Nona, I mean, B- Bustin' Out was a big record for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Which, of course, you know, was on Matsy yeah. Records compilation. Yeah, uh, it was. Disco. So yes. there's, a, there's a, a lovely overlap there. Yes. I mean, it's one of the most extraordinary stories of kind of self-reinvention, isn't it, mm, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in the history of American music, when you consider that they were a girl group that formed in 1961 mm-hmm. and played that circuit right through the 60s. Yes. And that, of course, that Patty was herself quite resistant to this idea of really changing everything about, about what they w- were doing. Right. But I think she also realized that, the girl groups were fading. The self-contained yes. male groups that yeah. were coming out of Britain were doing really well. So that was an aspect that that Vicky wanted to get into with them as well. Let you should be a self-contained unit that writes your own material and that you're expressing things that black women need to say. I think this 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 is a good moment to listen to a clip actually. Let's hmm. listen to Nona talk talking about pretty much precisely all, all of that. Oh great. Yeah. That's how LaBelle was born, with the fact that you, we could be 
three female singers, individuals with their own identity, and perform without having to wear the gowns, the tiaras and the pumps, and mm. you know, sing oohs and ahs all night long. It's just an That sums it up, doesn't it? Oh, it Very, does. And you know. and listen, Sarah Dash was no slouch either. I mean, uh-huh. what a brilliant voice she has, still has. She was kind of like the bridge between Patty and Nona's voices. And yes. and and Nona to me has said that Sarah was the one who, if if there was a note that was wonky, she would always come correct. And and right. you know, mm-hmm. but the ferocity of their vocals together when. They broke through that girl group paradigm and let loose. No one had ever heard black yeah. women sing like that together. I mean, no, those no. harmonies, they weren't perfect, but they were rough and wild and extraordinarily beautiful. You know, you also talk quite extensively about what you, know, what you and others term Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. And, and you point out the fact that they invented George Clinton's mothership to all intents and purposes. In a, yeah, in a sense, because he followed them in in, yeah. in that Afrofuturist presentation. I mean, it was really Nona who was kind of like the godmother of Afrofuturism in music. She's such yeah. a startling figure. Isn't oh, she's she? amazing. She's like, she's like this Amazonian-like space priestess. Yes, uh, yes. She's a, she's phenomenal and yeah. wrote most of the original yeah. but, but, stuff that yeah. they did. But yeah. she herself says in the book, I believe, that Sun Ra was a big influence on her. So the, Absolutely. That, that, that thread of Afrofuturism going right back to as far as Sun Ra. Very, oh, very much so. And funny, yeah. funny enough, when she lived in Trenton, New Jersey, George Clinton was her barber. <laughs> of course he had, <laughs> he had the barber shop, didn't he? Yeah. He had a barber shop. He used to cut amazing. her hair, which is amazing. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she's still... Just on the front lines of that, she was the artistic director of something at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was called The Cosmic Synthesis of Sun Ra and Afrofuturism. So, and this was just, you know, two years ago. She she just continues to generate, and she's very into helping Black women come forward, supporting their careers, trying to get more Black women involved in tech on the music side, you know, Mm. because there are hardly any. And um, no, she's just very, she's an icon to me. You know? we, we, we're huge fans. And as Barney was alluding to as well, I mean, certainly Barney and I are huge Patti LaBelle fans. Oh, yeah. In fact, we can listen to another clip now because I'm, for me, two of the best things I've ever heard were the two duets she did with Bobby Womack <laughs> on The Poet too, yes. which is just, just massive records for me. Right. So let's have a listen to this, this clip. Yeah. This is her talking about Bobby. Okay. <laughs> You're going to work with Bobby Womack again? I love the things you did with him. I'm going to call him tonight and see. Hey. Yeah. Is he's, he in town? He's in L.A. He's here. We're in England, right? He's here with uh, Ron Wood. He's so, over He's over here in England? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So I'm going to call him, and uh, hopefully we'll sing together when I do Hammersmith. Really? Yeah. That would be great. I love Bob. He's the craziest person in the world, and so down to earth. He could tell me where to get some good grub tonight, or maybe he's cooking over there and he'd bring me a hot plate. He's a he's a real nice man. Because 
because you talk about how she's such a great cook. That was one one of the things that Patty brought to the band was the food backstage and so on. So oh yeah, she used to travel yeah. with a whole like you know suitcase of of cookery and hot plates and spices and <laughs> you know. And she's published cookbooks, hasn't she? Yeah, I mean, she, she has. It's a, it's a sort of new new revenue stream for yeah. her. I I found it moving to read this book, Adele, after what's happened here in the UK, mm. the murder of of Sarah Everard and mm. the huge kind of eruption of rage around this, mm-hmm. which I think is completely understandable. Mm. And just to sort of read read about, you know, female empowerment, just how how strong LaBelle were and everything that it says about about kind of just yeah kind of girl power if you like yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean they they really were trailblazers they were pioneers weren't they and i mean the fact you you weave in your own story which you also reference in peter in the walls about the horrific traumatic experience you had i couldn't help thinking about that in connection with what's happened here and mm. and everything that's getting kind of the reckoning in in a sense that's taking place now mm. uh, i don't mm. know whether you you know, what, what do you have any feelings on that? Well, of course, you know, um, what happened to Sarah was devastating. And the statistics about femicide all over the world are, are devastating. I mean, I think this last year, femicide in America has just quadrupled because of the uh, lockdown. I think there, uh, there, the statistics are something like four women a day are murdered in this country. It's just devastating. And yeah. You know, we need re-education on so many levels. I, I feel like, you know, a lot of this debate goes on in social media, which can often be a very toxic and unproductive place for feminism and, and for movement building. And I just think, you know, I've worked with women in prison, too. I've worked with women teaching women songwriting in prison. And I think it's like 80% of women who are incarcerated have been abused, sexually abused, raped, or beaten, uh, you know, victims of domestic violence. I I just, you know, uh, we're in such a place where it's reached this pitch of fury. And, you know, I too want to understand how to like, how to, how to reeducate in a way that's more loving and isn't so, you know, I, I think that there's problems with men who are are not empowered in their society where they think they can take it out on women because they mm-hmm. feel this disempowerment. I also feel that men in power have this entitlement of their power that they think they can abuse mm. women. But Indeed. but this has to end. I mean, you yeah. know, it started with the Judeo-Christian church and just, you know, yeah. that the idea Absolutely. that women are are less than all the time and you have to take it back to the root causes and precisely and you're, you're quite mm-hmm. correct mm-hmm. you know I, I mean it's interesting in this country there are some people who are starting to talk about how the education of men or boys mm-hmm. has to start very early yes i agree, you know, in, 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 I agree. in like primary school in junior Definitely. school mm-hmm. you know that there has to be an actual effort to, to transform this whole thing. Otherwise, it's just going to go on and on. Well, precisely, um, yeah. We also have a government which is threatening to, is introducing legislation which will make prison terms for tearing down statues of slavers longer than prison terms for rapists. 
Oh, Jesus. So if you, pull down, if, you, Jesus. if you pull down a statue of a slaver, you could go to jail longer than if you rape someone. I mean, that, this is just mm. crazy. Yeah, it's horrible, yeah. isn't it? I mean, there was a placard left at the Bandstand Club and Common that I saw in the paper this morning, a picture of it. And it said, protect your daughter. And there was a line through that. And underneath, the person had written, educate your son. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's yeah. it. Yes, very much so. You very know. much so. I think there's another element in it as well, which kind of speaks to what we've spoken about already on the podcast, which is that we've talked about LaBelle being trailblazing, remarkable black women in music Mm -hmm. who were dropped by their label for being trailblazing and and remarkable and and still don't get the credit they deserve. I think that all plays a role as well as what you're talking about with men in power. Why don't LaBelle get the credit they deserve? And it's because they're black women. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely a part of it. But I also really feel that in terms of women in music, women have been either invisible or diminished. And, you know, this is because most music journalists have for the most part through the years been male. So, you know, Mm. if you talk about Sister Rosetta Tharp or Big Mama Thornton, Mm -hmm, these were women Mm -hmm. that created rock and roll. Yeah, And I think suddenly we're starting to finally see a lot of women coming forward, black women as well, writing about women in music. There's a couple of books that came out recently, Black Diamond Queens and Liner Notes for the Revolution. So black women are starting to write about this thankfully because yeah, if we don't write our right own well yeah and if we don't write our own history nobody will you know yeah. briefly to go back to yourself <laughs> there's an album i bought back in 1984 called the flat earth by thomas dolby yes which you feature quite significantly on particularly oh, yeah. a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant track called hyperactive so tell me about your childhood <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, it, and it's a fantastic record so, very Thanks. sadly the Wonderful bass player, Matthew Seligman, died of April last in April last yes, year. Yes, I know, COVID, I know. Which is I know, that was so very, sad. very sad. But so you're sad. very significant on it. You, 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 and I actually sort of found a clip on, of you on top of the pops. Ah. Oh, no, the old grey whistle. The old grey whistle bit. test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. But also, but also do, on top your... of the pops, singing with, singing with Jelly Bean. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, sang, you sang. You were a very prominent backing singer with with a lot of very big acts in that. It's a very it's a world away from the Lower East Side, isn't it? It certainly. But you was, had yeah. this kind of you had this 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 big sort of pop career playing in huge festivals in front of hundreds of thousands of people, and mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you miss that? Would you ever like? Would you like to have been a big a big kind of pop star in that era, or was it enough? the way you experienced it? You know, I, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I'm not ashamed of saying that at all. But I think if I had have become, let's say, famous at the time that, I, you know, I was being signed to Geffen when I was still drinking, it probably would have been an, an Amy Winehouse type of situation. Right. I didn't have the support. I think for people who really make it in the industry, you need an incredibly healthy support network around you. Because otherwise, uh, there's so many people that will come in and try to manipulate you to, you know, worse ends, I think, you know. Yeah. Two amazing documentaries I've seen recently, just that was also on my mind when I was reading your book, was the one about Billie Holiday that was shown on BBC Two here last last weekend, which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And the Billie Eilish documentary on, um, on um, Apple TV. Right, and the sort yeah. of different experiences 
that they that they that they had. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, that's not to say that Billie Eilish won't have some problems at that kind of level of fame, but right. it's a very different experience for her than it was for Billie. I mean, she has a, a, a functional, nurturing family around her, which of course right, Billie never right. had. Yeah. Have you um, seen the Lee Daniels film yet? No, haven't. Oh, it's brilliant. It's really, it? really amazing. Yeah. Stunning film. I did just briefly want to ask you about Laura Nero. You write beautifully about the album that LaBelle did with her, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. which yeah. I just adore that record. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and some, it's just some of the greatest singing. And also you make the point that it's just, it's, you try to think of other examples of black and white women singing together. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. apart from like in kind of choirs and, 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 and but in that yeah. very, very, on that level of equality, and you can't mm-hmm. think of very many uh, because there aren't that many, but it is a beautiful kind of sound to be an example. The blend of their voices is, is just wonderful. And I think yeah, maybe Nona yeah. says, well, she was like an honorary member of LaBelle. Yes, and that's yes, even before, that's yeah. like four years, three years before Lady Marmalade, isn't it? Yes, it is. And and one of the most extraordinary things about LaBelle was their ability to collaborate with white women in a way that, that was so like elevated and magical and loving, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I don't understand the, you know, all this segregation that's happening right now in terms of black and white women working together. You know, I, I had a little fantasy in the book that Fiona Apple and Michelle and Deggio Cello would get together and make a record. But, <laughs> yes. you know, it's, yes. it's in a lot of ways, I think that all, a lot of the accusations of appropriation that we hear these days are a new type of framing of segregation. And I think mm-hmm. it's very sad. I mean, let's face it, if black and white women got together in terms of creating a movement, the patriarchy would be gone. Because of the, no, seriously, because of the power. Think of the power if, you know, if the powers that be weren't separating us all the time through social media and, you know, social engineering. And I mean, that it's, it's in their benefit to keep black and white women separate from each other. And I see a lot of that happening in social media and, and et cetera. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the LaBelle album with Laura was, like one of the most extraordinary albums to me that has ever been recorded. You can't listen to that record and walk away, not in awe. Just the, op- you know? the opening of I-, I Met Him on a Sunday yes, yes. Uh, is just, yes. it's just the acapella with just hand claps yeah. for at least, before any instruments come in, yes. about a minute of just this yeah. acapella thing. And it just is just, it's, it's divine. It's so it's divine. divine. It's divine. Yeah, yeah. When I met him on a Sunday, Listen, we should remind our listeners that Why LaBelle Matters is just published this week by the University of Texas Press in that series. I know that uh, Why Solange Matters is just coming out here fairly soon. And I think your LaBelle book should definitely come out here by Faber should be publishing that here too. But it's a wonderful, (laughs) uh, it's just a a sort of hymn of praise to Mm. this This wonderful group that you saw in Cleveland in 1975. Yes, you? I yes. Think fe- February 75, is that correct? 
I can't, I can't remember dates. I'm terrible with dates, <laughs> I think it's but it's in the book. Lady, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's before, even before Lady Marmalade get, gets to number one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you saw them and I think you, as a, as, you know, you ran out and chatted with them yeah, as they yeah. were getting into the limousine. Yeah. Or so. little, I was their so little fangirl, the their little, were, yes. <laughs> uh, what Patty yeah. calls a glitter bug. Cause glitter bug. <laughs> so. And she says to you, are you a boy or a girl? Yeah, yeah. And you sort of went, mm, bit of both. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It's a great They got a kick out of that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's a great mm-hmm. book. So look, thank uh, you. Uh, Thanks so you, much. You can get it here. Even if Faber aren't publishing, you can, you can buy it here. Why the bell matters by Adele Berté. Go out so and get it. So thank you so much for talking about all of that. Yeah, go out and get it. Oh, exactly. of course. And thank you. Thanks for thank talk, you. It'll talking be available in, just wanted to say, I think the Rough Trade uh, shops will be carrying the book. Cool. Yeah, and they carry the Very Peter cool. and the Wolves book as well. So nice. Good old Rough Trade. You can rely on them to, to <laughs> sell the books that matter. That's that's true. <laughs> Will you please stick around while we move on to things non-Berté related? Of and course. just jump in whenever thank the you. mood takes if there's anything that you that just kind of yeah uh, you you feel you have something to say about just jump in thanks so much <laughs> <You're> so <welcome. laughs> for inviting yeah. me yeah. <laughs> oh it's lovely lovely to have you here so we lost sally grossman died just about three or four days ago and for anyone who doesn't know sally grossman was the widow of albert grossman who was the manager of bob dylan and the band and many other acts including janice joplin we've mentioned janice joplin so we have got a couple of pieces on the home page one by edward helmore and one by steve turner i mean guys did, did you know anything about sally grossman bef- i mean did you know about her in connection with dylan and the band no, the, the only thing I knew about Sally Grossman is that you had a run-in with her. <laughs> well, you knew she was the woman on the cover of Bringing It All Back Home. Yes, of course, it? yes. I mean, yeah. that's, that is her kind of great claim to fame. I think she deserves more of a kind of um, a claim to fame than that. But she is the lady in red who's sitting in front of the fireplace in Bearsville with Dylan and the Persian cat. And so our good friend <laughs> Edward got to know Sally quite yeah. well, and he tells the story of that album cover. I think he even finds out that the cat was called Lord Gowing. And and Sally says, it, must have, <laughs> it can only have been Dylan who called it Lord Gowing, because no one else would have done that. <laughs> but I do think Sally, Sally was quite an important figure in all of that story, because Albert was a folk manager. And I think without Sally sort of encouraging him to to think about younger acts like the band, Paul Butterfield and so forth, you know, he might not have created this extraordinary kind of stable of artists up in, in Bearsville. I was amazed she was 81 when she died. But she kept the place going after Grossman died in 1986. You know, Bearsville Studios became a very, very successful studio. And yes, I did have a run-in with her because I wrote a book about that whole scene. And for some reason, she just she just took against me. She was absolutely convinced that I had somehow taken Levon Helm's side against her, Albert, Robbie oh. Robertson. And she just got well, very, poss- very poss- shirty. Poss- 
possibly because you did slide. I did, but, but, not, but not in a not in an absolutely binary way. How could you have it? I did. It's not really fair to okay, say okay, that. It, okay. ma- it makes it sound very black and white, and I just yeah. it, and and I really didn't because I don't I don't think it's as, it's that simple. But mm. anyway, mm. Sally Grossman, we're saying goodbye to, and I'm now going to ask Mark to talk us through pieces that have been added in the last fortnight to the Rock's back pages library. So last week, starting to Melody Maker 1965, Chris Farlow was just about to have, have starting to have hits with songs written by the Rolling Stones, but he had a reputation on the British R&B scene as the great white soul singer. And he says, there are white singers in Britain like Steve Winwood that could blow Wilson Pickett off the stage, but they won't own up because they got a chip on their shoulder. All this about being born to the blues is a load of rubbish. Now, this is it's essentially a kind of fairly racist statement. And Chris Farlow went on to own and run a Nazi memorabilia shop in Islington. And yes. I, I believe <laughs> has had some has Jeez. had some links with the British right wing, which is Ooh. you know, for a guy for a guy basing his entire career on black music's pretty stinky. He wouldn't be the first. No, it wouldn't be the first. Um, certain Eric Clapton on stage at wherever it was in 1974. <laughs> a minor, a minor figure in the story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, mm. On a much lighter note, Philip Elwood and the San Francisco Examiner reviewing the monkeys live at the Cow Palace in Daly City. And it's, it, he's a kind of jazz snob, but he kind of like he. He enjoys it. He enjoys the, the fans. And just, along with the 17,000 others, all with flash cameras, I'm sure. My youngsters and I had a wonderful time at the KFRC Monkey Show yesterday at the Cow Palace. It was a pint-sized human wee-in. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that what I think it means? Yes, I think it is. <laughs> Rich Goldstein, New York Times, 1968, reviewing the band's music from Big Pink. I know we get a lot of flack for talking too much about the band on this show, but I thought this is a marvellous review. I love Richard Goldstein as a writer. <laughs> he, he's, he's really stylish. On its own stylistic terms, the band is an honest, versatile and immensely vital new group. So many rock musicians think they must assault an audience to make their presence felt. The band tries for less, but accomplishes more. It makes me long to hear real music, just music once again. I, I think he really he gets the band fabulously. Again, New York Times, 1969, there's a big uh, Michael Lydon feature on Janis Joplin. He hangs out with her while she's rehearsing the first band she was in after uh, Big Brother. Was that the Cosmic Blues Band, Barney, or the Full Tilt Blues yes. Band? No, it was the Cosmic Blues Band. Who yeah. weren't very good. And she says, people aren't supposed to be like me, sing like me, make out like me, drink like me, live like me. <laughs> but now they're paying me 50,000 bucks a year for, for me to be like me, which I think is, is really great. <laughs> and she says, man, I'd rather have 10 years of super hyper most than live to be 70 by sitting in some goddamn chair watching TV. Mm. Well, <laughs> Adele, you said you said earlier that you were singing "Peace of My Heart" when Peter first yes, heard yes, you sing. Yes. Were you, oh, really? Were you a, yeah. I can only assume you were a Janice fan. I mean, did she? Did I was she a, yeah. And, yeah. Oh, totally, totally. And you know, yeah. Nona Hendrix wrote the song "Nightbirds." And it was prompted by an exploitive biography that one of Janis Joplin's female lovers had written about her. I can't Peggy remember the Cas- name of the Peggy Cassata. Yes, yes, that's yes, it. Yes. yes. <laughs> Love, yeah. I think it was called Love, comma, Janice. Yes, was I it? think it was. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, go, moving up to 1985, this is Max Bell in Number One magazine interviewing, well, sharing fashion tips with ZZ Top. Which is, <laughs> yeah, as, we, as we've all done. As we've yeah. all done. And Billy Gibbons is talking about, you know, ZZ Top, after their initial success, had about three or four years off. Billy went to Paris to work in the do experimental music in the Beauborg and things like that. Not what you'd expect from a Texan blues guitar player. But he's talking about their beards. He says, me and Dusty discovered, this is when they got back together again, me and Dusty discovered we'd grown 14-inch beards in that time. Frank just has the name beard. He shaved his off. <laughs> so I, I always love it. It's, 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 yeah. it's one of the great facts about ZZ Top, isn't it? <laughs> OK, this, this week, very nice single review. Penny Valentine and Disco Music Echo in January 68 reviewing Love's Alone Again Or. Mm. And she says, certainly the best of the West Coast groups. I've always loved Love's ability to combine progress with strong melody and a certain indefinable something. New writer we've got on board, Maureen O'Grady, which we're very, very pleased about, wrote for Rave in the 60s. And she's interviewing Mick Taylor in 69, just before setting off the American tour. And he says, I remember being completely speechless when I got to Hyde Park. That's when it hit me that I was a stone. Yeah. <laughs> so It's so great to have, I mean, to, to add to your collection of pioneering female pop writers of the I, 60s, I, Mark. Mm, so I love great, it. isn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, Adele, it's a big thing of mine. I just, I've become completely obsessed with these marvellous women who wrote for the pop papers in the 60s. I love it. And mostly, I love got, it. mostly got shoved aside. You know when the when it got serious mm-hmm. and the men came in and took over, mm. but it's it's <laughs> Philip Elwood again. This is from the San Francisco Examiner, in January seventy, and it's possibly the very first mention of Bruce Springsteen in print. And he's reviewing Bruce's band, then band called Steel Mill, mm. and he says, "I've never been so overwhelmed by totally unknown talent." Steel Mill does all their own stuff, mostly written by lead guitarist, singer Bruce Springsteen, and mixing things up so informally and well that an observer just has to get involved. So he gets Bruce Springsteen way before the rest of the world do, which I think is pretty good. Ian Deary, interviewed by Barry Kane, Record Mirror 79, satire is the last outpost of the bankrupt middle-class public school wanker. (laughs) (laughs) Are we allowed to say wanker? (laughs) Of course we are. (laughs) Who's stopping us? Everybody keeps saying I'm ugly. I don't think I'm ugly. No, I'm just around a corner and three doors down from handsome. That's all. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Another new writer we've I've recruited in the last kind of couple of weeks is Judy Panabianco, who wrote for Boston Rock. Mm. And this is an interview with Keith Levine from 1983. He'd just left Pill. And he says, any music you ever hear on a Pill record except for the occasional drum track, is me. The music's me. Later he says, it was me, John and Sid. We all thought each other worked great. Sid died and John has now died as far as I'm concerned. Mm. It's a really bitter interview. Mm. It's, it's extraordinary. Wow. wow. Yeah. He was in New York. Did you come across him in New York? Because uh, Keith Levine was living in New York at that no, time. No, I did not, no. Right. Probably just as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe just as well. Yeah, but you're both still alive. That's the important. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I, again, for him, by the skin of his teeth, because he, he he developed a fairly serious heroin problem. Mm. Oh, yeah, I believe. Mm. That's my lot. Um, over to you two chaps. 
Beautiful. Well, I feel like I should just mention the featured writer and just also reiterate that we oh, have yes. two great pieces about LaBelle on the homepage this week, both by female writers, Lillian Roxon, talking to Nona in 1972, mm-hmm. which is which is a great piece, and Robin Katz, a cover story for Let It Rock in 75, which is really great because it sort of starts in Philadelphia. They're doing a show called Morningside. So it starts in the fall of 74. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the last bit of it is in Amsterdam when Lady Marmalade has been released as a single. So it, it, it sort of covers about three or four months. It's great. Paul Rambali is the featured writer. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of tying mm-hmm. in with some of the themes. This piece he wrote about the Cleveland scene. Um, he went there for enemy in early 78 and reported on all these extraordinary new bands that were kind of popping up. So it's going to roll call of bands from Cleveland and, and Akron, mainly Perubu, and he mentions Devo, the Bizarros. I think he even mentions Human Switchboard. There's also an interview he, he did with August Darnell for The Face in 1981, which, which is great. So I wanted to mention those. And in terms of pieces just going into the library, there's a lovely interview with Millie Jackson, another very strong black mm. female performer, from 2004, just Love looking her. back on her career and, and her transgressive X-rated soul. A great piece about Screaming <laughs> Lord Such, actually, which, I mean, I learned, I learned quite a lot about the man born David Such, that Alan Clayson wrote in, in 2012, just about, <laughs> I mean, Mark will remember the monster raving loony party. Oh, God, I yes. don't think Jasper <laughs> may not remember them. I remember um, the monster raving loony party, actually. you know about them, Adele. Do you? Okay, yeah, you yeah. do. All right. Okay. I well, thought you might be too I've young. I've heard of Screaming Lord Such. You've heard yeah, of Screaming yeah. Lord Such. But, but what, yeah, was, yeah, did yeah, he come yeah. after Screaming Jay Hawkins or before? Oh, yeah. He did, but he's, he, he, the screaming he did borrow from, from, from Jay. Okay. He he also, this, I think, I, he, no, he also did Getting Out of the Coffin bit as well. Ah. He did. You're absolutely so, right. He did. So, you're so quite he, right, Mark. He, he's, mm-hmm. he's, you know, a white guy from sort of Essex or wherever he's from, basically <laughs> kind of attempting to be Essex. screaming Jay Hawkins. <laughs> yeah. But he was, good he was good just, luck with that. Yeah. He was just an ever-present <laughs> on the kind of hustings, really, in the political scene. The, they always stood for election, the monster-raving loony party essentially mm. sending up the whole thing but but there was a seriousness also to what to, which, 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 this piece kind of reminded me that it wasn't all just daft lampooning um it's quite a good piece mm. anyway that's that's all i'm going to mention from the kind of last 20 years i'm going to ask jasper if he's got any like little little treats in store for us Little tidbits. I wanted to actually mention <laughs> something from last week. Our featured writer last week was Michael A. Gonzalez, a great writer. Yeah. And one of the pieces was him remembering the notorious B.I.G., Biggie. Mm-hmm. And there's a film out on Netflix yes. just recently, Biggie, I've Got a Story to Tell, which I've not quite finished, but the, what I've seen of it is just great. Loads and loads of footage recorded by D-Rock on like a handheld camcorder mm-hmm. type setup. And it's it's a really worth a watch. And Michael A. Gonzalez's piece is worth a read. It's just great. It, it finishes, cue up, you're nobody till somebody kills you. Listen to Biggie's gruff, bottomless voice riding the beat, spitting phrases that thrill you. It's almost like he's still here, almost like he'll be notorious forever. He just is. I mean, I, mean, I think Michael A. Gonzalez says in his piece, he's the greatest rapper ever he just he's definitely in that conversation if not just is the best rapper ever and he, he just there's something about his flow and in the documentary what's great is that 
Whereas previous things about him often kind of focus on the Tupac Biggie murder mystery kind of element of it. This documentary so far is pretty much about him and his music in a way that is refreshing and I think should be the case really because his music was so great and there's great stuff from a a saxophonist who he lived near was was his neighbor who kind of was initially trying to groom him to become a jazz musician and having him listen to bebop snares and that's kind of where some you know max roach bebop snare drumming like where biggie's flow kind of came from and i just think it's it's a it's a great great watch and he's so great he's so wonderful i mean i love yeah you know what they also go into his musicality that that he loved to listen to bands like the stylistics and the dramatics yeah. and and you, you know it's something you wouldn't guess about him but he that you know he used to love singing along to that stuff so. yeah someone someone yeah. describes him as like almost like an r&b singer mm-hmm. but rapping instead mm-hmm. of instead of singing yeah yeah it's just as I leave my competition respirator style climb the ladder to success escalator style hold y'all breath i told y'all death controls y'all big don't fall y'all uh I spit phrases that'll thrill you. You're nobody till somebody kills you. Michael Gonzalez, you know Michael Gonzalez, don't you, Adele? Or at least his name appears... I don't know him well, but he was very complimentary about my book, which I was thrilled about. Mm -hmm. And I, I like his writing a lot. He, yeah, oh, he's, he's really, really good. He's yeah. great. One of the other feature pieces was him talking about smoking blunts with Biggie and Snoop and Cypress Hill. <laughs> oh, man. He just goes through everyone he smoked a blunt with. And it's just a great <laughs> answer. So, so good. <laughs> just a couple of things to mention, funny things from this week that I added. Battle of the Blands, <laughs> Westlife versus the Spice Girls, Caroline Sullivan in The Guardian in 2000. And it's just a really funny. I mean, she's, Caroline Sullivan at her acerbic best, just absolutely tearing into the whole Westlife versus Spice Girls thing, sort of what what does the biggest chart clash being those two tell us about the music <laughs> business? And and her, her verdict is nothing good, basically. It's a very funny article. <laughs> then an Eric Weisbad review of, of Le Tigre, their album Feminist Sweepstake, mm, which is which is great. Title. Trio's 1999 debut was a lifesaver. Yes. The one cool record in the year of rock rap, as they themselves sum it up on track on their album after that. And songs like My My Metrocard illustrated what Sex in the City might have been if the entire American viewing public consisted of Janine Garofalo, ah! which is funny. <laughs> That's great. That's, That's great. Cool. And the last thing just to just to mention is a really, really interesting piece. Candy a Crazy Horse in the San Francisco Bay Guardian in May 2007. And it's talking about Lily Allen, Joss Stone and Amy Winehouse and taking on the subject of cultural appropriation of, in this case, British white singers taking on a black soul voice and selling records through that. And Janis Joplin actually is mentioned in it. Stone may be styled in psychedelic body paint flowers and baubles as some lost wild child of Janis Joplin. But unlike that late bad Jewish girl with a yen for the blues icon, she lacks the ovaries and independence to instigate any sonic revolt, nor does she transcend her black influences. Although she too failed to flip the rock biz's race politics, Joplin was an original. She was also perfecting a worthy form of hybridity, whereas Stone would still do best to apprentice behind a seasoned soul singer and grow into her voice. Meanwhile, she's an immature artist trapped within the middle-class mythos and mass fantasies of the pop star system. And the whole article is is very, very strong on that whole topic. I just think it's well worth reading, and it's still 
so relevant today as well. This is, this is written by a black woman who made a country album. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, all of this appropriation talk just... I, I find it so hard to listen to sometimes, you know. It's 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 kind of worms for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, for it's, sure. it's a difficult topic, but I think you, you kind of have to listen when someone is saying, well, there's this, why can't we do this thing that, that other people can come and do and, and profit from, from us? Yeah, but it also really sure. depends on how we're raised and what we resonate to sure. and how we, you know, how all of these influences come out in, in an artist's work. I don't think they should be shamed for that, you know? And also appropriation's always gone both ways. Mm-hmm. You know, for for example, Prince, one of the great artists of our lifetime, hoovered up so much from white rock and roll. I mean, where, where did white rock and roll come from? But I do think that, that appropriation does go both ways, but I think the power dynamic only goes one way, and that, well, that's, that's the made, problem. That, that, the that, the I, problem is the power dynamic. It's not sure. the appropriation itself. It's yeah. the appropriation attached to this horribly unjust system that, that exists. Fair and right. I agree with that's that. Right. I, I, I totally right. agree with that, the, the power dynamic. And you, you know? write a lot about that in the, in the, in the LaBelle book. Mm-hmm. That's a constant mm-hmm. kind of, you know, motif that pops up you know right, to explain right. why why they weren't more successful or lauded than than exactly. than they than they were exactly exactly yeah. there's an interesting yeah. moment where i think doesn't patty describes laura nero as a black mm-hmm. woman in a, in a white body well uh, other black writers have have done that as well like mark anthony neal yeah. has talked about laura sure. nero like that and um yes yeah, absolutely yeah. so i think that's brought it a neat full circle so that's my lot Great. Fantastic. I think that probably brings us to the end of what's been a wonderful episode. It's been really, really interesting talking to you about all of this stuff from so Peter Lochner to LaBelle and beyond. And can we expect the, the no New York memoir or part two kind of memoir thing at some point are you actually working on that oh of course we want to read it yeah we i am I'm working. That's, fact, we'll, we'll that's, start a kickstarter <laughs> right now that's that's what lydia and i speaking of the spice girls we call ourselves the slice girls so um <laughs> we uh <laughs> you can expect you can expect the no new york book i don't know how soon but uh okay. you know there is a bit of a retro virus of people being still endlessly fascinated with that you know, New York scene of the late seventies, early eighties. Absolutely, so. I've caught that yeah. virus. And, Me too. Um, yeah, and yeah. I haven't <laughs> found a vaccine. I haven't found a vaccine for it. <laughs> <laughs> Pfizer have yet to produce one. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, know, I think Barney and I both caught it way back. I mean, for me, there's a lot of stuff I loved. Defunct. Every time Defunct came to London, I'd go and see him. Uh, James Blood Ulmer, I loved, and whilst they weren't kind of oh yeah, immediately of that scene. That sort of stuff. I, I found English post punk a bit dour, and so just hearing music made you want to get up off your chair and shake one's scrawny white booty. Sort of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing, nothing dour about this record. No, I know. Uh, uh, I, I found it. Uh, I couldn't find it on Spotify, but I did find "Button Up" by the Bloods on YouTube, and it's on that New York Noise compilation, which is a kind of son of no new york isn't it which came out maybe yes. like 15 years ago yes definitely. and who played who played bass on this track because it's, a, it's a oh that was brenda track. alderman brenda alderman is an amazing Great. bassist and I, you know i had written some demos with her which got me the geffen deal and then as soon as i got the geffen deal they said you got to get rid of brenda oh for god's interesting sake. eh 
Where have yeah. we heard that story uh, before? So, yeah. Dear, dear. Mm. Separate, separate you from the people you can do things with. It's exactly. just great. Oh, it's I know, it's terrible. It's terrible. terrible. Also, all these amazing female bass players. I mean, I forget her name, but Kid Creole had a brilliant woman bass player. Kim mm-hmm. Clark and Defunct. Gail Ann Dorsey. Gail Ann Dorsey, and, and yeah. I, I've met Gail in the past. She lived up in Woodstock, so I, I got to know her a little bit. Yeah. Our friend Abba, you know, our mutual friend Abba. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this is getting all a little bit too incestuous. We better we better wrap up. Okay. Unless we'll just be sitting there like goth, just like shooting the shit about nothing in particular. I know, I which is not probably what we do anyway. But Mark, will you talk us out with uh no, well, well, uh, no, Bonnie, I suggest you introduce the last clip because you're sort of more sort of au fait with what Is that because you can't remember what it is? No, I can't remember. <laughs> <what it> is. <laughs> I suggest no. I'm <laughs> um, take it under consideration that you should introduce the final clip. Um, the, the, the final clip of the from the August. I can't even say August. I don't know how to pronounce August Darnell. August August. August Darnell is basically him talking about Stony Browder, who was his older brother, and Stony Browder essentially was the leader of Doctor. Buzzard in the original Savannah band or the Savannah band. And so basically Larry Jaffe asks him, what would Stoney have thought of the Chachet La Femme musical that is about to open off Broadway? And this is August's response. We'll be back in two weeks with Joel Selvin, another Californian resident, talking about his new book, Hollywood Eden. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, I want to to join us again then. I want to talk to him about that money. Yeah. That too. That too. No, his 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 ultimate book, which I, I just reread his ultimate book, which is really fantastic. Okay, great. And well, make sure you've yeah. read Hollywood well, Eden look. by this time. By this time in a fortnight. <laughs> a lot of Possibly reading not. homework for this poem. Probably. Anyway, all right. We're we finally say saying goodbye. Adele, bless you for joining us. It's so great to see you. Enjoy another sunny day in Southern California. Thank you. I had such a great time. Thanks for inviting me. Really fun. Thank well, you so, so much. Be. It's been great. <laughs> it's so been really great. Fantastic. Bye. Time. Bye. Bye. What would have your brother made of, of, of the show? Well, Stoney was never into theater. He didn't, as a matter of fact, he frowned upon it and thought it was quite boring. And uh, you could never get him to, to go see a theater piece, for instance. But he did like the films that were made of, 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 of theater pieces, like The King and I he'd watch, and The Sound of Music he'd watch, but he'd never go to see them on stage. So he would probably frown upon this and say, a uh, little brother, uh, you're wasting your time. Uh, let's go for a gig together somewhere. <laughs> He's got no woman and no home. For misery, oh oh. Cherche la femme. That was August Darnell in conversation with Larry Jaffe in 2016, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to a special guest, Adele Berté. Why Bell Matters is published by University of Texas Press and available now from all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Sorry, carry on, Jasper. I just was... It, it finishes... I was going to say... Cute, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> the pitfalls of Zoom. Yeah, the joys of Zoom. We're going to have yeah, to start, yeah, yeah, have to start yeah, raising yeah. our wait, hands, wait, aren't we? Wait, like, like, I, like that. Uh, yeah, Mark yeah. is oh, blushing. Has, oh, look. Barney Hoskins <laughs> has something to say. Yeah, well, he's always got something to say. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 